Exodus chapter number 12. Exodus chapter 12. Last Sunday, we looked at the first nine of ten plagues in Egypt. In fact, we covered several chapters in the time that we had together and left off just this one final plague. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to be the father of a great nation. Abraham bears but one son of promise, Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob begets 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel through a series of providences and some misfortune. The people of Israel find their way through those tribes of Jacob down into the nation of Egypt where eventually they are enslaved for a period of 430 years. God calls Moses at the burning bush to be the deliverer to go and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. But he's warned, and it proves to be true, Pharaoh will not easily let them go. In fact, again and again and again, even in the face of great plagues, he refuses to let Israel leave, that they would worship God in the wilderness. And so with the tenth and final plague, God turns the fortune of the Egyptian people. He turns the fortunes of the Israelite people, but he also turns the fortunes of the Egyptian people. In one fail swoop, both judgment and salvation come to the land of Egypt. Judgment against the people of Egypt, but for those who take shelter behind a doorpost that is painted by the blood of a sacrificial lamb, there is salvation. Look to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read together verses 1 through 13. If you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, which I Hope that you have. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of his word. The Bible says in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month is to be the beginning of months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's households, one animal per household. If the household is too small for a whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animal at twilight. They must take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over fire along with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire its head as well as its legs and inner organs. Don't let any of it remain until morning. You must burn up any part of it that does remain before morning. And here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I'm Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. 
The blood on the houses where you're staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day is to be a memorial for you, and you must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it throughout your generations as a permanent statute. You must eat unleavened bread for seven days. On the first day, you must remove yeast from your houses. Whoever eats what is leavened from the first day through the seventh day must be cut off from Israel. You are to hold a sacred assembly on the first day and another sacred assembly on the seventh day. No work may be done in those days except for preparing what people need to eat. You may do only that. We've read further than what was planned, but we'll read further than that before our time is done. Let's be seated together and may the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. We have skipped over chapter 11. If you've been tracking with us, you note that we have passed over chapter 11. Chapter 11 is where God says through Moses and Aaron, here's what's about to happen. The destroyer is coming to the land of Egypt. About midnight, in fact, a death angel was to pass through and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt would die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who's behind the millstones as well as every firstborn of the livestock. The previous nine plagues have been disastrous. There is an awareness throughout the land of the plagues. No one wants any more of the plagues. But no plague would touch the nation as deeply as the plague that God would work at the coming of the Passover and the death of all the firstborn. At the center of Israelite religion was the remembrance of this Passover. In fact, if you go to chapter 12 and verse number 1, verse, verse 2 rather, the Bible says this is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the beginning of uh, the first month of your year. This was front and center. The celebration of the Passover marks the beginning of the year. This is front and center, first and foremost. You are to remember what God did for you in the Exodus event. What every Israelite was to do was to remind themselves, to be careful that they never forgot what God did for them in the Exodus. You must never forget. And the mechanism for remembrance was the celebration of the Passover meal. Most of what we just read in chapter 12, verses 1 and following, was a prescription for the Israelites in remembering this Passover. Not only are they there given instructions as to how the Passover is to unfold the first time, but they're given instructions as to how the Passover remembrance or celebration was to unfold every year. First month of the year, on the 10th day of the month, separate a lamb. On the 14th of that month, at twilight, you are to sacrifice that lamb. You are to eat that lamb and unleavened bread with certain uh, specifications. There are certain things that you are supposed to do. You eat it with your sandals on. You eat it ready. You eat it with unleavened bread. You eat it as though there's an urgency about the meal. The concern here is not for taste or spice. The concern here is for sustenance. There is an urgency. But in every case, you eat it in remembrance of the Exodus event. You eat it as a reminder of what God did in separating for himself the nation of Israel, all his own. In the first month, the Passover was to be remembered, a celebration of remembering God's faithfulness in the Exodus. That is the centerpiece of Israelite religion. That celebration is the Christmas of the Old Testament. 
When you come to the New Testament, Jesus takes the Passover celebration and revolutionizes it. He calls the disciples together on the night before his death. He sends them first to an appointed place to ready themselves for the Passover celebration. And then they pull up to a table where Jesus takes the bread and breaks it and says to the disciples, this is my body which is broken for you. Take and eat in what? Remembrance of me. In other words, like the Passover in the Old Testament, under the new covenant, the Lord's Supper reminds us that we must never, ever, 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 ever forget what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. How we have had our exodus through the blood of the Lamb of God. How he died in our place. How the third day he rose again. How he brought us out of our bondage and slavery into the promised land. How he reversed our fortunes and changed our life entirely. We must never forget what God has done for us through Jesus. If you were reading carefully, listening carefully, and perhaps even drawing comparisons between what is experienced at the Passover and our celebration of the Lord's Supper. Let's, let's pause and, and press on that a little bit. In the Passover, they were to gather together, they were to eat unleavened bread, and they were to eat the lamb, roasted, cooked over fire. There's urgency about meal preparation. When you cook over fire, it happens quickly. It suggests a bare-bones approach, that we don't have time for the advanced cooking methods like boiling in water or whatever other options might have been available in that day. You roast the Passover lamb over, over the fire and the unleavened bread and, and the lamb serve to be a reminder of God's uh, passing over the people of, of Israel. And then Jesus calls the disciples together and he says, take of the bread in remembrance of me and and drink of this cup which is the blood of the new covenant and my blood shed for many for the remission of sins take and drink in remembrance of me what, what's what's missing in our celebration of the lord's supper what element is absent in our celebration of the lord's supper that is present in the passover celebration it's the lamb when Jesus calls the disciples together, there is no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. Now, you may miss that in your reading of the Gospels as this description of the first Lord's Supper celebration is written for us under the inspiration of the Spirit. But no disciple seated around that table that night would have missed it. The lamb's not on the table. He's at the table. It's, it's, it's not a, a sacrificial lamb in the Passover sense that will deliver us from our sins, that will rescue us from our slavery. It's Jesus. Jesus is the lamb. So much of Exodus 12, and for that matter, the chapters that come, provide for us the context in which we understand what Jesus did for us. Exodus 12 helps us to begin to understand that someone must pay the price for our deliverance. In the case of Exodus 12, it's an actual lamb that stands as our substitute. When the destroyer comes, it's the lamb that delivers us, that becomes our replacement. On the night that the destroyer passed through Egypt, something was dead in every house. 
either an Egyptian firstborn or a lamb, but someone died in every house. The lamb became a substitute for the people of Israel. And so in John 1, John the Baptist stands and he sees Jesus coming from some distance as he's celebrating a baptism in the Jordan River. And he says to all within his hearing, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's so many points of of comparison, so many parallels between what's unfolding in Exodus 12 and the way the gospel is explained for us in the New Testament. At twilight, on the 14th day, as, as the Passover day is beginning, you are to sacrifice the lamb. It's not incidental that the gospel writers include for us this historical bit that at twilight, Jesus cried, it is finished, yielded his spirit forth to the Father and breathed his last. Our Passover lamb is sacrificed as our substitute at twilight on that night. All of the expectations of a substitutionary sacrifice are fulfilled in Jesus Verse 5 says you must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. Take it from the sheep or the goats. You're to keep it until the 14th day of the month. The whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. There's this community activity where these animals, as the substitutes for, uh, for us in the judgment, die a death simultaneously in order that we might come through the judgment of God by the blood. Verse 7 says... They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat. They're to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Take the blood of the lamb and paint it on the doorpost. Paint it on the lintel. Paint it liberally. Make sure that you can see it. Don't you know if you are informed that this blood will be the indicator that the destroyer will not come to your house, that you would have painted the doorpost and the lintel liberally. You want to make sure you've got plenty of paint on the doorpost, plenty of blood on the lintel of your home. That was, for the Israelites, the single distinguishing mark. The blood of the lamb marked the Israelites safe from the judgment of God. The Bible says here in Exodus 12 that that disaster would strike the land of Egypt. God says the destroyer is coming. Some of your translations say the death angel is coming. And then God says later in Exodus 12, I am going to strike Egypt. God says I am coming in judgment. The only distinguishing mark between you and those around you will be the blood painted on the doorpost of your home. It's not the righteousness of the Israelites that saves them from the coming judgment of God. One thing you'll observe later in the book of Exodus is this is not an altogether righteous people. It wasn't their observance of certain rituals that saved them from the coming judgment. It wasn't that they were better than the Egyptian people. It wasn't their ethnicity. One thing we'll see in just a moment in the close of chapter 12 is that there's actually a band of, of some ethnic diversity that goes with Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. It wasn't their ethnicity that saved them. It wasn't their good fortune. They're not wealthy, they're slaves. And it wasn't their slavishness. It wasn't that they were the low caste that God chose to save them, that they were passed over in the judgment. It was the blood of the lamb that marked them safe 
from the judgment of God, and not much has changed under the new covenant. Your background, your personal righteousness, the fact that you regard yourself one way and not another will be of no benefit to you when the judgment of God comes. It's only by the blood of the Lamb that we are marked safe from the judgment of the destroyer. It's always been the blood. In fact, they're warned, don't go out of the house. If you leave the house, you're on your own. The same pattern is followed in Joshua 2 when the Hebrew spies go over to Jericho and they meet a prostitute named Rahab. And they make an arrangement with her. They're echoes of the Passover as they tell her, tie a scarlet cord to your window. And you and your family, everyone in your house will be safe when we come against Jericho in judgment. You'll be marked safe by the scarlet cord that hangs from the window of your home but don't go outside. It, it's the scarlet cord that marks the family of Rahab safe. It's the blood of the Passover lamb that marked the Israelite people safe. And for those of us who will bear through the coming judgment of God, it will be the blood of Jesus Christ that marks us safe from the judgment that is to come. There is an urgency about their Passover celebration. We are to eat the meal in a certain way. In fact, verse 11 says, you must be dressed for travel, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You're to eat it in a hurry. This sounds like the way all Americans eat, but this was not the way Israelites would have eaten. They were to eat differently. Eat as though you are ready to go because you must be ready to go. There is an urgency about the consumption of this meal an urgency about the consumption of this meal that foreshadows the gospel urgency that we know in Jesus. The Bible never says that tomorrow is the day of salvation, but that today, today, today is the day of salvation. It's, it's easy to begin to rest and to take time and opportunity f for granted. But the reality is that the very breath that we breathe in this moment is provided by the patience of a God who will one day turn destruction against a creation that constantly labors against him, shakes its fist in his face. There will come a day when the sins of this world have fulfilled themselves in the eyes of our God, and the ultimate and final judgment will come. On that day, yet again, the only safe place is behind the blood of the Lamb. There, there, there must be an urgency about our gospel advancement. The blood of the Lamb marked the Israelites safe from the judgment to come. God says, I'm coming against the nation of Egypt, against the land of Egypt. The destroyer is no respecter of persons. The only shelter is behind the Lamb. Here's the third thing. The blood of the Lamb ended Israel's slavery and set them on a course for the promised land. That might seem like sort of an maybe not as significant move in Israel's story, but I want you to know that for us this is big news. Look down to verse number 29 of our passage. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. 
During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all of his officials and all the Egyptians. There was loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, get up, leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship Yahweh as you've asked. Take even your flocks and your herds as you ask and leave. And oh, by the way, also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor in the Egyptians' sight that they gave them what they requested. And this way they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 soldiers on foot besides their families. An ethnically diverse crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves, since it had no yeast. For when they'd been driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared any provisions for themselves. The time the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord, because he would bring them out of the land. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. Now, I want you to note first that there's, there's judgment for the people of Egypt. Don't miss the fate of the Egyptians. Someone was going to pay for the sins of Egypt. Either the, la the lamb or the, or the people of Egypt, the firstborn of Egypt. Someone did pay in the case of the Egyptians. With no lamb's blood to mark them safe, it was their firstborn who paid the penalty. The salvation brought by the lamb and the judgment brought by God made the impossible a reality for the people of Israel. 430 years the people of Israel were in Egyptian bondage. So if, you, if you're reading your Bible, you're reading through Genesis, and you get to the end of Genesis, and Joseph is over in Egypt, and his brothers come down, and they begin to settle during a famine, and then you turn your page, and Moses is dead, and you're reading the book of, uh, or Moses is uh, coming to leadership in the book of Exodus. He's born and tucked away in the Nile River, and within a few chapters, you're here at the end of this season in Israel's history. But 430 years have passed for the people of Israel in their Egyptian bondage. They, they have adapted in so many ways to, to Egyptian culture. Don't you know that their, their whole psyche was changed by their Egyptian experience? A few chapters back when Moses meets what would soon be his wife at a well in the, the land of Midian, they go back and report to their father, hey, we met an Egyptian at the well. You couldn't, you couldn't tell the difference between Moses and the Egyptians. He was so saturated in Egyptian culture and the ways of Egypt that he'd become indistinguishable from the Egyptian people around him. Religiously, they had adapted to their uh, stay in the nation of, of Egypt. Later, when Moses and Aaron instruct the people away from idolatry, they warn them about continuing to worship the gods of the Egyptians. In some cases, they brought the idols of Egyptian religion along with them, even in their journey in the direction of the promised land. 
They spoke like Egyptians. They behaved like Egyptians. And don't you know that in so many ways, their, their, their hearts, their, their attitudes had been turned by this experience of slavery. Generation after generation after generation after generation had lived in this oppressed state. And in a moment, God does what must have seemed impossible for the, Egypt, for the Israelite people and that he ends 430 years of slavery and sets them on a course toward freedom. He lets them leave livestock in tow with the wealth of Egypt. They just walk to neighbors and say, by the way, can I borrow your silver and gold? Can I have some clothes for my journey along the way? And God gives them such favor with the people that they're handing over their goods, their things to the Israelite people. In this way, the Bible says, they plundered the Egyptians. In a moment, God changed the course of their life. Here's what I want you to know, and this is such a precious and undervalued promise of the gospel. Because of what Jesus did for us at the cross... Because there is an empty garden grave outside the city of Jerusalem, you don't have to live the way that you have lived anymore. You don't have to be characterized by your Egyptian bondage. You don't have to be known by the many ways you have adapted yourself to the culture around you. There is freedom for us in Jesus. And the Israelites struggle to get this. Forever they struggle to get this. Until they die, they struggle to get this. Anytime there's a little pressure in the wilderness, what do the Israelites say? We should have never left Egypt. There's always a tendency to revert back to our slavish ways because we're comfortable there. We know what to expect in Egypt. It's not good for us. It's hard for us. But at least we know there what to expect. And what I want to say to you, what I want you to hear, is that there awaits us in Jesus after a long, arduous, difficult, sometimes dangerous journey. There awaits for us a land that flows with milk and honey. There is a place prepared for us in Jesus that so far outweighs anything that Egypt ever stood to offer. Get out of Egypt and head to the promised land. That's where God is. You don't, you don't have to keep living the way you've been living. And it's such a refreshing note for those of us who are living under the consequences of generational insanity. Your family's jacked up. Your parents were all jacked up. Their grandparents were jacked up. And, and you just are the natural product of the insane environment that you were raised in. And I got good gospel news for you. You don't have to continue the pattern that you were born into. You don't have to be that anymore. The culture around us says, just be who you are. And I can think of nothing more fatalistic, more depressing than the notion that we are somehow bound to the circumstances under which we were born. The gospel says, don't just be who you are. Be, be who God would have you to be 
And it promises us the freedom and the power to be that person, not who we were environmentally conditioned to be. We'll say it that way. This is good news, isn't it? This is good news for folks who have crazy, twisted up, sin-wrought backgrounds. That we don't have to be that person anymore. That there's freedom for us in Jesus. Exodus 12 is the story of the gospel cast in Hebrew terminology. We were oppressed and enslaved in a desperate state. In a land that was not our own. But God sent a lamb to be the substitute. Because the price of our deliverance was more than we could pay. A lamb paid the price. The Passover lamb took the place of the people of Israel. Jesus has taken the place of his people. The shedding of his blood would mark us safe from the coming judgment of God. It would change our destiny. It would part the waters and set us on a course for the promised land. There'll be difficulties and hardships along the way. Sometimes it's dangerous following Jesus between our exodus and the promised land. But it's a journey that's well worth taking. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a journey we wouldn't forego for anything that Egypt could ever offer us. If, you, if you're here this morning, you're not thinking about the gospel, haven't thought about the gospel at all, I want to be careful that we articulate the message of Jesus in a way that's clearly and widely understood. The, the message of the gospel is that someone must pay for our sin. Someone must pay for your sin. It doesn't matter what your standard is. Even if, even if your standard is what you've determined to be good or bad, you've broken that standard. Even by your own standard, you are a sinful person. Someone must pay for your sin. And God has loved us so much that he sent his son, the only person in the history of humanity who, who never knew sin, the only righteous one paid the price for our sin. The one who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, Jesus does not die for bad things that he did. Jesus died for the bad things that we have done. At the cross, God treats Jesus as though he had done all of the bad things that we have done. So that on the day of judgment, and even in the here and now, God may justifiably treat us as though we have done all of the good things that Jesus has done. Not only does Jesus take our place at the cross, but in a mysterious way, we take the place of Jesus. Because of what he does at the cross, we can take our shelter behind the blood of the Lamb. Not because we are good, better than most, because of where we came from, but because the blood has marked us safe, we are free from the judgment to come. But the gospel does so much more than the Exodus did for the people of Israel. The Spirit of God, by faith in Jesus, comes to live in our hearts so that we're given the power to overcome all of the obstacles that always tripped up the Israelite people. 
The power that raised Jesus from the dead comes to live in the heart of every person who believes on the promise of the gospel. Now, not only does the Bible say that this is how we are saved from the judgment to come, the Bible is crystal clear that this is the only way that we are saved from the judgment that is to come. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and no man can come to the Father except through him. This is, this is the gospel. And, and I want you, no matter what, what place in life you find yourself, if you're here, an adamant unbeliever, or a person who's been walking with Jesus for 80 years, this, this, is, this is worthy of our attention. Even the adamant unbeliever must, must wrestle with and reconcile his unbelief over and against what the Bible has said. And even the most advanced believer, if we could describe such a state that way, finds hope and encouragement and comfort in the promise of the gospel. The old song says, I love to tell the story for those who hear it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. As you meditate today on Exodus 12, I hope that you'll look for the dozens of parallels that exist between what God has done for Israel in the Exodus and what he's done for us by faith in Jesus through his death and resurrection. Aren't you glad for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world?